Good seeing you all this morning. Glad that you were able to uh, be here. What an incredible day outside. We woke up last night to the rain and the thunder and then some more rain this morning. And so certainly our, our valley needed that. And we praise God for that. Listen, let me make you aware of a couple of important announcements. Number one is that you probably already know that our, our vacation Bible school has been canceled. Some of the reason for that is a number of those who are major players in our BBS that make it go have either uh, contacted some uh, virus or have been exposed to it. And so we felt necessary to cancel it since you can't hardly do a BBS without those people being a part uh, of it. But not all is bad news. We have some excellent events that are coming up. The world we live in, our area-wide young adult and young family seminar is going to happen on August the 20th through the 22nd. So you might be thinking about uh, that. Joe Wells is going to be speaking at that. Then, of course, our ladies retreat on September the 17th through the 18th. So there are some really good things that are going to be happening there. Remember, the registration deadline is August the 18th. And so if you haven't done so already, you might want to start thinking about getting your registration done for that. And then, of course, there is Ivydale. And I'm told that they had an incredible camp up there. And so I've asked uh, Clint if he'll come forward and if he will spend a, little bit of mo a few moments telling us a little bit about that camp. And so, Clint. Not on. I'm just used to yelling. We good? Okay. Yeah, we just finished teen camp about less than 24 hours ago, which seems unreal. But yes, we finished. <clears throat> I told the staff, I told the kids there at camp, um, Friday before camp, Friday, Saturday, we were literally this close to camp not happening. It was kind of teetering on the brink there with some of the things, the COVID cases that came from that seem to be connected with preteen camp. We don't know still what the situation is there. Never will know, probably. Um, but I told our staff, told the campers that I think Satan was seeing a pretty good victory coming. And I think at about 11 o'clock Friday night when our camp board president said, yeah, let's go with it and just be safe, I think Satan was angry, and I think he's very, very angry now. Because our camp was a, was a great success. We had an absolute great week. We had about 175 people at camp, including staff and campers. We had some campers come and go. We had some staff come and go. We were represented by seven states with campers, which is maybe a first. We had five, I think, congregations who had never sent kids to camp before. And we talked to several of those yesterday who said they're already for sure planning on coming back next year. So that, that in and of itself was great. We had 27, I believe, from counselors, staff, kitchen staff, 27 of our members were involved in camp. So I'm just going to ask you, if you were a camper or on staff at camp this past week, would you please stand up for just a second? Campers, staff. You were staff. A lot, a lot of people, a lot of people from this congregation. Okay, you can stand a lot of people from this congregation are, are involved with camp in so many different ways, and in that week in particular, we also had, we had 16, we have 16 new brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, I've told several of you, I told people there that every year we have kids who, who are ready to decide to be baptized at camp, and, and we talk to them, we work with them through it, 
And every year, there's of those, there are some that I, I just wonder. I wonder what it's going to be like when they get home. Are they going to be taught? Are they going to be Are they going to be discipled further? This year, there is maybe one that I wonder about even at all, and I'm, I still feel pretty confident in, in that young person. Of our own number, we have six. Tim McCoy was immersed into Christ. Rowan Harris, Jacob Ansay, Austin Pecora, Camille Crane, and Carly Crane. That's <clears throat> yeah, just really cool. Our, our, <clears throat> our theme at camp was Return and Rebuild, and we looked at Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah. We looked at the first part of Ezra, chapter 1 through 6, and we inserted Esther in the middle there, and then we finished out Ezra and finished out Nehemiah, and we looked at a lot of different themes, but it was, we, we looked at, at, at preparation from Ezra, from Ezra, where Ezra prepared his heart to be right with God, and we talked a lot, lot, a lot about that. We talked about Esther being in just the right place at just the right time and how important that is for all of them, for all of us. And then we talked about the rebuilding process and that it, that it is a good work that we see from Nehemiah. And one of the things that we wanted to leave these kids, with, what really with all of us with, is the importance of having a plan. So our last night, we had the kids sit around after we finished up the whole thing. We had them sit around together in groups of two or three or four and make a plan for what, what are they going to do when they come back down from camp and yesterday, today, they're hit with temptation that they're hit with struggles. We, we see from Ezra and, and Nehemiah both that they were planners. They were guys who were ready to do what, what needed to be done. So we asked the kids to make a plan. And we talked about the concepts of separation, uh, spiritual separation and devotion to God. And we asked them, make a plan for that. So let me encourage you as their family, these six of our number who are brand new Christian babies and all these kids and really all of us, ask them about their plan. Encourage them in their plan. Let remind them that you want to be behind them, and that's 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 the one thing that we really want. As much as anything, we want you to be happy about what happens at camp and the things that go on there. But as we talked about several times, talked about this morning, even that when when those new Christians are immersed into Christ, they're part of this family now. So they're a part of us, and we told them, said you're going to be loved on, you're going to be hugged on, and and you're going to be put to work. So. Thank you all so much for your participation, for your incredible support for camp. And we just, with, with above everything else, God be praised for things that go on at camp. Amen. Thank you so much, Clint, for that. Uh, I put that picture up there. I tried to find one of the, the new uh, facility, but that's the old one, and that's a beautiful picture in just in and of itself. And anyone who doesn't think that camp is not valuable and that it doesn't move lives and change lives, I mean, you just haven't been up there to experience that and so for those of you who have worked up there at camp i uh, thank you so much for all the hard work that you uh, did and making that such a success and you teens for going up there and being a part of that thank you for that as well so expectations sometimes expectations can be difficult to deal with boy and his father they went to a, a market and while they're at the market the boy went kind of wandering off and the father he bought a crate of chickens to take home when the son came back, he told his son, you have the responsibility of making sure that the crate of chickens get back to the house. And so the father left and headed back to the, the farmhouse, and the boy kind of followed up behind carrying the crate of chickens. And on the way, suddenly the chicken crate fell out of his arms and hit the ground and broke open, and the chickens, they scurried everywhere. 
Well, the boy is in desperation, but he is determined that he's going to collect all those chickens and get them back inside the creek that he had repaired. So he began to go all over the, the neighborhood and scooping up these wayward birds, and eventually he got them all that he thought back into the crate. But he's still a bit worried because he thought maybe he didn't get as many chickens as he lost. And, and so there is just, you know, he just worried about that and, and was afraid of what his dad is going to say. So he got home and he said to his dad, Dad, the chickens got loose. But listen, he goes, I was able to find all 12 of them. And his dad said to him, he goes, son, you did really good. But you only left with seven of them. So the son, you know, he had certain expectations, and his expectation was that there must have been at least 12 chickens inside the crate, and so he went after his expectations and not necessarily after his father's expectations. When you talk about the kingdom of God, in many ways, there are those who have kingdom expectations, and sometimes those preconceived expectations can be difficult to deal with. They're not always as we think they're going to be. And so when Daniel came along in the second chapter in verse 44 and was speaking to Nebuchadnezzar that Perry read to us just a few moments ago, as he's talking to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's telling him about this incredible kingdom, well, those who would later read about that kingdom and then read about the nature of the kingdom and the characteristics of that kingdom, they're going to have a really hard time with it. Because many expected in Jesus' day and in ours that a kingdom much like all the world kingdoms around them that's the kind of kingdom that, was, that John the Baptist was talking about when he came and preached that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And that later Jesus in his ministry, as he began it, would start preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preparing the way for the kingdom to come on board. And yet those who were part of that and listening to the words of Daniel 2 and verse 44 that we'll look at a little bit more in depth later, they were confused about that. In fact, I would say to you that today there's a lot of confusion about what the kingdom of God really is about. That there are some misconceptions, that there are some false expectations that are out there. And so this morning I want to talk to you about the kingdom in keeping with our theme. We've been talking about the king and his kingdom. We've talked a lot about the king, or at least some about the king we're going to start to kind of move now to talking about what the kingdom is and, and what are the expectations of the kingdom for us. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to maybe see if I can clear up some of the misconceptions and some of the false expectations and, and some of just the confusion that surrounds the kingdom because I really don't think it's all that difficult to understand. As we begin talking about the kingdom, remember we started talking about an unlikely king that the God of the universe, the creator of the world, God Emmanuel, God with us, came into the world in a most unusual kind of way, being uh, born of a, a virgin, being born in a stable, laid in a manger. Who would have possibly ever thought that the king of the universe would come into this world to look forward to establishing his kingdom uh, in a real kind of way? And then we talked about the announcement of the king, and there we talked about this most unusual, peculiar individual that would come wearing a camel's haired garment wrapped around with a leather belt, eating locusts and, and wild honey, and he came with a unique message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he announces and prepares the way for the king to come on board. And then last week we talked about the inauguration of the king. Generally, when you think about the inauguration of a king, you think about great fanfare, you think about parties, you, you think about a lot of majesty that surrounds that. 
And yet Jesus comes to John at the Jordan and asks to be baptized by him. And John did so because he wanted to fulfill all righteousness as Jesus had asked. And in that moment when he came up out of the water, there is a voice from heaven that declared and affirmed that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus then went into the wilderness wondering, and when he came out of that wilderness wondering, in, in Matthew, the fourth chapter, in verse 17, his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The expected kingdom. But the expected kingdom is not always what we expect. Sometimes there's a lot of unexpected things that happen when it comes down to the king in view of how man looks at a kingdom and how God looks at the kingdom. There sometimes are two different kinds of things. And yet when we talk about the kingdom, the kingdom is outlined within the scriptures and it's shared with us what it looks like. So I want to talk to you about the kingdom itself or just the word kingdom. The word kingdom is a word that is a prominent feature in the New Testament. In fact, it's used over 162 times in the New Testament alone, another 237 times in the Old Testament for a combo of 399 times. That tells you that there's a lot of things to be said about the kingdom. In the Old Testament and the prophets and with John and Jesus, they spoke of an expected kingdom that was on its way. But after Pentecost and looking back, it all talks about an expected kingdom that has come. And so it's a word that is used a lot. So there must be a lot of importance behind this idea of a kingdom. We just don't talk about it much at all, if not hardly at all. And yet it really is something that really is important. Well, the word itself has a variety of uses. And it's oftentimes determined by the context in which you find that word kingdom in. Let me demonstrate what I'm talking about. If a person says to you that I'm really proud of my bridge, then you might be thinking to yourself, well, what kind of bridge are you talking about? Are you talking about this bridge that is out in front of your yard that is an exceptionally beautiful bridge? Or are you talking about this addition to your teeth, such as a bridge? And so when you talk about the context, only the larger context can really tell you how that word fits into its place. And that is truly uh, true about a lot of words that you find in the scriptures, but it certainly is true when you talk about the kingdom, 162 times. And then it always referred to the exact same thing. There are a variety of ways that it is looked at. I think it's also important that you get an idea of what the definition of the word kingdom is. Well, sometimes it's an abstract noun. It, it denotes sovereignty or royal power or dominion or rule or kingship. That's what that word oftentimes means. Jesus was given all power, all authority, all dominion over everything, all rule over everything, over all authority as the king, as the son of God and over his kingdom. And so it does talk about sovereignty and royal power and, of course, dominion. But sometimes it's used in a very concrete kind of way, denoting a territory of people or a realm of people that the king rules over. And in my estimation, when you talk mostly about the kingdom in the New Testament, you're probably talking more so about the second one, that Jesus has a realm, and that realm involves the citizens of the kingdom that he rules over, those kingdom citizens who have given themselves to the king and are obedient to what he has to say to them. 
And so the kingdom that Jesus emphasizes is the, the ones that he rules over in terms of the hearts of the individual. In the kingdom, the citizens of God are called priests or they're called a holy nation. In Revelation 1 and verse 6, there John says that he is, God has made them a kingdom and priests. And then over in 1 Peter, the second chapter, verses 5 through 9, he says that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession. So in that sense, there we are talking about citizens of the kingdom that Jesus rules over as a king. Of course, when you talk about the kingdom, as I've already mentioned, there are various uses of this word kingdom and how it's used. For instance, sometimes it's seen as a geographical territory, uh, a, a place with borders, if you, you will. In Matthew, the sixth chapter, in verse 23, there it says that uh, Jesus, or it is recorded by Matthew that Herodias is dancing before Herod Antipas. And she so incites his passions for her and for this seductive dance that she is doing that he says to her that I would give you the, whole, the half of all my kingdom because it is, is, you know, his passions have been so elevated. I'll give you half of the kingdom. The problem is that Herod Antipas really didn't have a kingdom to rule over. The Romans were the rulers of uh, Palestine at that time. He really didn't have a kingdom to give over, not even half of a kingdom to give over, but his passions were elevated, and so what he could produce to her was only the head of John the Baptist in reality. So the kingdom is seen in terms of a territory. And as, and as Perry read to us out of Daniel, the second chapter, verses 36 through 44, there he interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, this great statue he talks about four kingdoms that are going to come. And, and history tells us that those kingdoms began with Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, followed by the Medes and Persians, who were uh, led or, or ruled by Cyrus the Great. And then came the Grecian Empire, or the Greek kingdom, and, and there Alexander, he conquered most of the known world, followed by one that was stronger than all of those three combined, and that, of course, was the Empire of, of Rome, and the kings that were a part of it, or what we would call emperors of it. And so Jesus talked about those things, and Paul talked about this kind of nation that would come about. But it's not just that. God is rule over all the kingdoms of the earth. Oftentimes when we talk about kingdom in the New Testament, we think about Christ's kingdom or the kingdom of the New Testament. But the kingdom of God in one sense has always existed in some form or in some nature because God has always been sovereign. God has always been a ruler over the nations. I like what Daniel, the fourth chapter, verse 17 says in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17 as as Daniel interprets the, the interpretation of the vision of this great tree. In verse 17, he says this. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. If you were to go back to Daniel, the second chapter, I believe it's verse 37 there, there it talks about the fact that God is the one that establishes kings and kingdoms, and God is the one that brings down kings and kingdoms. Oftentimes, we don't think of it like that. And of course, mankind doesn't think about that at all. 
But providentially speaking, God has always been the ruler. God has always had dominion, and he moves the world around at his will, though men may not know that it's happening that way, and maybe even think that they're the ones that are moving all the ponds around Earth's planet. God says, I am the ruler over everything, and I rule over everything by virtue of the fact that I am the creator of everything. So he has all rule and dominion. Not only that, he chose the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel, he calls them to be a great uh, possession of his. And that they were to be a holy nation before him. Back in Exodus, if you'll open your Bibles to that section of scripture there, he says some incre pretty incredible things about uh, this very thing about God being over the nation. Listen to verse 5 of Exodus 19. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Then you should be, shall be my own possessions among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Israel had a special place in the heart of God. And he tells them, he says, you're going to be a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, a royal nation, or a, a holy nation. So there's something that is going to be there that's a special relationship that God has with the nation of Israel, where they truly do understand what it is to have a king over them. So the idea of a kingdom, or the concept of the kingdom, is not about so much about territory or borders as it is about rulership. God ruling over the hearts of men and women. And this is especially true when you talk about Israel and the world's struggle over God's rule over them. They had rejected that over and over again. But God is a benevolent king. He's not like the kings of the, of the world. This is a benevolent king who cares about his citizens and, and watches after them and, and in, in great ways and so God's desire is that he always wants to be uh, ruling over the hearts of the people he wants the people to give their hearts to him that he might rule them as this benevolent king but repeatedly over and over and over again Israel rejects the king of uh, king over them or God's rule or dominion over them and the result of that is that Jesus will eventually sternly tell the people that the kingdom of God shall be taken away from you and given to another people who will produce fruit. So what he's saying is, is that the kingdom of Israel is terminal. They'll eventually be terminated because of the fact that they have rejected the Messiah. They rejected the king. They decided that they would not follow after his rulership. And so Jesus is saying to him, the kingdom of God is going to be stripped away from you and it's going to be given to another. Well, Israel did reject him. And in 70 AD, Titus Vespasian surrounds the city of Jerusalem, lays siege to it, eventually breaches the wall, goes inside the city itself and completely dismantles takes apart the, the temple. I mean, from one stone upon another, they broke it all down. Today, if you were to go to Israel and were to go around the temple, you'll see those stones that have been toppled that have never been placed back in almost 2,000 years. So after that happened and that temple was completely de destroyed, that kingdom went away in terms of the Mosaic system because the temple has not been rebuilt. 
Judaism is such just a shadow of what at one at one time was they don't know who their high priests are they don't know exactly who the the Levites are who are the those who took care of the temple and the rites within it they don't practice the animal sacrifices if you were to ask them what does the Messiah look like and and how do you know he's going to come they'll tell you we don't have any idea about that no clue to it and I've talked to a number of them when I was there uh, last and so Jesus said, this kingdom is going to be taken away from you, is going to be given to another, another. So if you were to summarize that, everyone in the universe is under God's rule because God is sovereign of the universe because he has created it. Whether they accept that or not, or believe it or not, nevertheless, that's the truth of the scripture. There are those, the vast majority of individuals and nations that are under his rule but refuse to recognize him as the sovereign rule to their own spiritual peril. And then there are those, the people of God, the true people of God, who recognize the rulership of God and the rulership of King Jesus and bow our knees before him and all that he says. So in a sense, God's kingdom has always existed. There has never been a time when he has not been sovereign. There's never been a time when he has not been ruler and that he's not been king. That's who he is. And so Daniel, he prophesied about an everlasting kingdom that he said will never be destroyed. So he talked about a kingdom that he forecast in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. So let me just draw your attention to it for a few moments that Perry read to us a few moments ago. And that is, in the days of those kings, remember uh, Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream and he says, this last fourth kingdom, he says, in the days of those kings, and history tells us that those kings was the Roman Empire. In the days of those kings, God, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. And that's a kingdom unlike any other kingdom or world kingdom that has ever come uh, on. Now, some of the confusion that has to do with this is some believe that God's going to establish an earthly kingdom where there are borders or territory. There's going to be a throne that's going to be in Jerusalem, and Jesus is going to set upon that throne. And as a kingdom, it's going to be so powerful that it will subjugate all other kingdoms and all other peoples, and they will all, by force, submit to this king. When you study about the kingdom, though, that's not its nature. When you study about the kingdom in the New Testament, you'll find that the kingdom really is a hard thing, and it's not about a rulership or a subjugation where people are forced to bow. That day is coming in the judgment. But as to the kingdom itself, it's not a place of subjugation. It's a place of free will where the subjects freely give themselves over to the king to be ruled by them, and they follow them because of that. This is the kingdom that John came preaching when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the kingdom that Jesus talked about when he uh, proclaimed as he began his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If it's at hand, it's not 2,000 years away. It's not 3,000 years away. He says it's at hand. And Daniel said, in the days of those kings, Jesus was preaching in the days of those kings and that the kingdom would be established. Take the Mark, the first chapter, verse 15, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What time is fulfilled? Everything that the prophets had talked about, 
Everything that had been written concerning the kingdom was coming to fruition. But it's going to be manifested in a new and in a special way, different from all the other kingdoms. And so the hopes expressed in the Old Testament prophets are they're ready to be realized. In fact, in Mark the ninth chapter and verse 1, Jesus is speaking right after in the 8th chapter. He said that if anyone wishes to follow after him or to become a disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. Well, he, he, he continues on to the thought in chapter 9 and verse 1, and he says this. Truly I say to you, there are some of you who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So it gives you a, you know, it gives you some, a timeline of when this kingdom is going to be established that Daniel talked about, that John talked about, that Jesus is talking about. And that, and that timeline has to do with those who are alive, who are listening to Jesus preach at this moment. And he says to them, there are some of you who are standing here right now who are alive, who will be alive when you see the kingdom of God, when it comes with power. It's going to be a reality, and you will know about it. So the next thing that you come into is the uh, Christ kingdom. So we talked about a territorial kingdom. We talked about God being kingdom over hu humanity. We talked about the kingdom of Israel, and it had to do with territory. But then there's Christ's kingdom, and Christ's kingdom has nothing to do with territory whatsoever, geographically speaking. In fact, I would submit to you that the term kingdom is employed almost predominantly in the New Testament as a synonym for the church that Jesus established. In fact, Jesus Christ, he uses this terminology in an interchangeable kind of way. And I think I shared this with you, I don't know if it was one week back or, or two weeks back, but we looked at Matthew, the 16th chapter, verses 18 and 19, and you remember that Jesus was up in Caesarea Philippi again, and he asked the disciples or his apostles, who do people say the Son of Man is? And you recall that Peter finally said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a huge statement. And Jesus said to them, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, or the, king, uh, the keys of the ki kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's given authority. And listen, Peter exercised that authority, and he used those keys on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit with power came upon all the apostles, you recall, and Peter, he takes his stand, and he preaches the first gospel sermon. And when he was done with the sermon, the people asked him, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 41, we learned that 3,000 were obedient and were immersed into Christ for the forgiveness of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins before that point in time. Can't pray Jesus into your heart as your personal Savior? If that had been so, when they asked, what shall we do? He said, ask Jesus into your heart as your personal Savior, and your sins will be forgiven. But he doesn't say that. Day one, as the kingdom begins, they ask, what shall we do? And he tells them to repent, to be baptized into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He uses the keys one other time with Cornelius' household over in Acts, the 10th chapter, as the Gentiles 
have the doors open for them as they enter into the kingdom and are baptized as well. If you were to look at what's going on here, when you think about the Old Testament and the New Testament, the prophets close the promise of the Messiah's coming. Close with the promise of the Messiah's coming. The gospel, it closes with the promise of the Messiah and that kingdom of God about to arrive. And then in the book of Acts, except chapter 1, tells the story of the kingdom that has arrived. So if you were to take it, the Old Testament, a king is coming. The New Testament, uh, gospel, the kingdom, the king and his kingdom have arrived, and the, or the king has arrived, and then in Acts, the king is on his throne, and the kingdom is now a reality. So in one sense, the kingdom prophecy of the Old Testament were fulfilled when the church was established on the day of Pentecost, because after that day of Pentecost, uh, Acts chapter 2, the Bible speaks of the kingdom as already being in presence or in existence. It's, it's part of who we are and what's going on right now. So Colossians 1 and verse 13 says that God has transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we're in the kingdom if you are a Christian. The, Christ, the kingdom is a present reality. You're not going to be able to see this chart very well right here. I wish I had had this as a handout. But it says, all passages before, before Pentecost speak of the kingdom being, uh, as being future. All passages after Pentecost speak of the kingdom as established. And so if you are in the church, you're in the kingdom. And if you are in the kingdom, you're in the church. The kingdom has come. But I need to let you know that there are some differences when it comes down to the relationship that is designated by the terms kingdom and church. So what do we mean by kingdom? Well, the kingdom refers to the relationship the Christians have with God. He is now the ruler, the governing aspect of, of Christ in one's heart. Jesus is on the throne of our hearts, if you will. When you talk about the church, the church or the called out ones refers to those who have, a rela who have relationships with one another. We are the called out ones. So in one sense, we are the church. In one sense, we are the kingdom. Uh, we are both. And so there are two different terms, and yet they refer to the same group of people. Let me illustrate by what I mean by that. You take a man, and he is known as a father, but he's also known as a husband. That refers to two different relationships, but it refers to the same man. The same man is a husband, the same man is a father, and so when you talk about the church and the kingdom being one and the same, that's the idea. It has to do with relationship, but it all speaks of the same group of people. The other thing I want you to know is that when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he emphasizes the eternal aspect of the kingdom. When people think about kingdoms, they think about the physicality of the kingdom. They think about territory. They think about borders and thrones and things like that, literal things like that. But Jesus, he emphasized the aspect of the kingdom that it's internal because remember I said to you that God's desire is always that he would rule over the hearts of men and and women that you don't have to be in a geographical territory to be a part of his kingdom or even in a building to be a part of his church so there's some internal aspects of this Luke the 17th chapter verses 20 through 21 says 
Now, when he, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. I like the way the New Living Translation put it. There it says, one day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there, for the kingdom of God already is among you. It's already within you. The among you probably is not the best translation. I looked up the word itself. It means to be within. And so he says the kingdom is not something that is visible, other than probably the fruit of the Spirit that maybe as Christians we are to bear. But other than that, you cannot find a territory that you just log it into. Uh, it's something that is, he says, within each and every one of us. And so the kingdom rule produces a victory from within. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Jesus says that one cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless one has a childlike spirit. Over in Matthew, the 18th chapter, when he's talking about the parable of the unmerciful service, servant, he says one cannot enter the kingdom if she or he has an unforgiving spirit. Or Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, where he talks about the separation of the sheep from the goats. Well, one cannot enter the kingdom unless he or she cares for their fellow man. And that we're interested in what's going on, and he uses those words kingdom in all those places. Or maybe a favorite of yours, certainly a favorite of mine, is Matthew, the sixth chapter and verse 33, where Jesus said, don't worry about the things of the world. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek God's rule in your lives and in your, and in your hearts. That brings us to maybe one of the last things about the kingdom, and that is in order to be a part of the kingdom, you can't join the kingdom. You have to be born into the kingdom. Or be added to the kingdom as over in Acts, the second chapter, in verse 41. But listen to what, G, uh, what uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus over here in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, but a secret disciple. He's kind of into what Jesus is, is doing. There it says that he comes to Jesus by night. And he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so what he's saying here is that, listen, only those who are born again are allowed into the kingdom of God. Not just the kingdom that is present now, but the kingdom of heaven itself in eternity. And so what he's talking about, it means that you must be baptized according to Christ's will to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so in Acts 2 and verse 38, on day one of the church and the kingdom, the people asked Peter, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, into the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And we learn in verse 41 that 3,000 were baptized. They were born again. And the Bible says, and the Lord added them. Added them to what? Well, he added them to the church. And he added them to the kingdom. One last thing, when you talk about the various ways the word kingdom is used, the kingdom of heaven oftentimes refers to the, abode, the ultimate abode of the faithful. We're in Philippians, the third chapter, and verse 26 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, where we eagerly await a Savior. And so when you talk about the kingdom, the kingdom is transient in many ways. It's physical in that we can see one another, and we're part of that kingdom but it's spiritual in that it's made up of the family of, of God. It doesn't have territory unless it's your heart. So no borders there. It does have a king that's Jesus, and he rules our lives and rules in our, our heart. And we are the subjects of that kingdom. We are those who are citizens of that kingdom. And so to draw to a close, the kingdom is right here, and it's right now. The question is, have you been born into the kingdom? Because you can't be in the kingdom without being born into it. So if you need to do that this morning, then I would encourage you to do so. Well, together we stand and while we sing.